baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and as always, time to talk Braves and Major League Baseball as we continue to count down the days until spring training. We are under three weeks until Braves pitchers and catchers will report to Northport, Florida and we'll get this baseball season cranked up again. Very excited about that, but lots of stuff to talk about this week. Big news, of course, the Hall of Fame announcement that happened a few days ago, and we'll talk a lot about that. Going to have special guest Jay Jaffe joining me to talk about the Hall of Fame class of 2020. Looking forward to chatting with him. Bill Rowland will also check in so we can do our starting nine this week. But there was also big Braves news because there was a big signing. Atlanta has found its cleanup hitter, and it will be Marcel Ozuna, who inked a one-year $18 million deal with the Braves earlier this week. We'll hear from Atlanta General Manager Alex Anthopoulos and get his thoughts on what the Ozuna signing means and some of the other things he sees with his team as they get ready for spring training and finally have that big bat in the middle of their order. Before we get started with all that, I want to invite you to subscribe to From the Diamond. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Ratings and reviews, always appreciated, so keep those coming. And be sure you're connected on social media. On Twitter, at FromTheDiamond underscore is where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley. That's G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. On Instagram, you can find the show at From the Diamond with no underscore. I am at Grant McCauley there as well. And find every episode of the show and everything else at FromTheDiamond.com. That includes my Braves positional preview series. The pitching staff is done, so parts one and two, bullpen and rotation. You can read those right now. Three more parts to go. Next up will be a look at the Atlanta catchers, and I'll have that out in the next few days. With all of that said, it's time to dive into the week that was in Atlanta Braves news and the big story, as I mentioned, the signing of outfielder Marcelo Zuna. So let's dive into that. He, of course, the former Miami Marlin turned St. Louis Cardinals outfielder and was definitely a thorn in the side of the Braves for St. Louis in the National League Division Series. It seemed like Ozuna was up every inning, and it seemed like he was always on base. So good to have that guy playing for you as opposed to against you. And this does finally answer the question of how will Atlanta address the middle of the order? I've always had a soft spot for Ozuna going back to his minor league days when I saw him coming up through the Marlins system. But more than that, I think he's got the potential to do some big things in the cleanup spot, perhaps reminiscent of his big 2017 season with Miami. And the Braves needed someone to step up and fill the void that Josh Donaldson left when he signed with the Minnesota Twins. As far as the need-to-know stats on Ozuna, 29 home runs in 2019. He did miss 32 games. He broke a finger at one point, which really slowed him down throughout the season, and he's dealt with a bit of a shoulder ailment over the last couple of years as well. 241 batting average, his lowest in any season in his big league career, but an 800 OPS, as I mentioned, 29 homers, 89 runs knocked in in 130 games. Pretty good numbers right there. 
and the possibility he could see an uptick from being in this Braves lineup and playing his games at Truist Park, which I think might be a little bit better for hitters than up at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, but that remains to be seen. Either way, there's a lot to like, I think, about Ozuna. I did not think he'd be available on a one-year deal, so that surprised me the most. I did some local Atlanta television over the weekend, and I was convinced that a trade was going to be what the Braves were going to have to do to get somebody into back cleanup because I just didn't see a free agent that was sitting out there that the Braves were going to come to terms with on a multi-year deal. Alex Anthopoulos has been very methodical about what he's looking for when it comes to giving out a long-term deal. Obviously, the Braves haven't given out a bunch of those over the last three years, but he's been very creative about trying to construct a roster, construct a team, construct a lineup, but not necessarily getting hamstrung by just overreacting or making a deal just to make a deal. I know it's easy to ask for that, and it'll always be easy to spend somebody else's money, but for him, it's a little bit more challenging, and he has managed to, in my opinion, not only plug those holes, but find guys that can contribute in a variety of different ways, whether that be a Josh Donaldson getting plugged into the cleanup spot last year or a guy like Matt Joyce at the end of spring training who ended up being a big contributor. There's a lot of different moves the general manager makes, and hopefully you're able to put together the best roster of 25, well, now 26 guys, and get yourself back into October. And that, of course, is what the Braves' focus is as they welcome Marcel Ozuna into the fray for 2020. Let's hear a little bit from Braves general manager Alex Anthopoulos, who spoke to reporters on Tuesday night and discussed what exactly the Braves were looking for and how it led them to signing Marcelo Zuna. Just like last year with Donaldson, we weren't focused on the position. We just focused on the player that we thought was the best fit in here. We were looking for a middle-of-the-order bat, and similar to last year, it happened to be third base, and we were happy with Camargo and Riley, And but, you know, Donaldson was a good opportunity in this way. We liked our outfield. But, you know, we really feel strongly about Ozuna's bat, and we think there's a lot more upside to what he showed last year. And we just thought he'd be a really good fit for us, and the deal made sense for both sides. Of course, adding Marcelo Zuna, another outfielder, means it's getting a little bit crowded out there. As you do some very simple math, you've got Ronald Acuna Jr., you've got Marcelo Zuna, Nick Marcakis, Adam Duvall, Ender Ciarte, and perhaps others in the minor leagues that could be factoring in at some point with Christian Pache and Drew Waters. But... Just at the big league level, all of a sudden, you've got five outfielders and only three spots to play them. So it'll be interesting to see how the Braves decide to do that. And the mix in the outfield is something else that Anthopoulos discussed upon signing Ozuna earlier this week. So right now, we've got Acuna and Ozuna projected as everyday players. And the remaining guys, Ender Inciarte, Marquecas, Duval, that'll be worked out over the course of spring and so on. And I talked to... Smith today uh, talked to um, all three of Duval, Marquecas, and Ciarte to let them know about the Ozuna signing before it got announced, uh, so they were aware. And um, you know, we're just we have time, you know, for opening day. So, so I'm sure uh, Smith will have that all ironed out by March 26th. Now, of course, the big impact Ozuna is going to make is in the middle of the lineup, where Atlanta lost its cleanup hitter after Josh Donaldson signed with the Minnesota Twins. Alex Anthopoulos discussed his thought process when it came to replacing that big bat in the middle of the order. Look, I think when I got here, there was a lot of talk when we made the Matt Kemp deal about Freddie's number. Like, Freddie is a great player regardless. We're just looking to act great players. I know there's a lot of focus on the lineup and the order and who's hitting where. And, again, I know it was a small sample, but even if you looked at that 2017 season, when Nick hit behind Freddie and Matt Kemp hit behind Freddie, I think the numbers were arguably a little bit above 
with Nick. And I don't know that, you know, I think it's just more a credit to Freddie. He's a great player, and Freddie's consistently had great years. He had a great year in 2018 when Nick was behind him. He obviously had a great year last year with Josh behind him. And this was just a chance to add another big bat, big power bat for us. So the focus wasn't on cleanup hitter. Uh, it was just let's get as many good players as we can, as many good hitters as we can. What exactly is Atlanta getting by signing Marcelo Zuna, and how is he going to fit in? That's something else that Alex Anthopoulos and company were thinking about as they moved toward a deal with the power-hitting outfielder. Yeah, so we've obviously did a lot of work on him, very well-liked as a teammate. And Fitz, you know, you guys know we talk a lot about Fitz with our clubhouse and our team, and um, you know, all the reports that we got back on him were very strong, very positive. So we're certainly excited about that. But like I said, we think you know, he ran into some bad luck last year. He still had good numbers with an 800 OPS. Uh, we think there's a lot more in there. We think he's got a chance to rebound to uh, the season he had with the Marlins offensively in 2017. And we think that's still in him. So we're certainly excited about that. And you know, we just think he'll be a great fit for us. The fit both on the field and in the clubhouse is obviously important, but the fit in the middle of the lineup is what most Braves fans are curious about. As far as what Marcelo Zuna brings with the bat, Alex Antopoulos believes he can get back to being the player he was just a couple of years ago in Miami. I think just some of the batted ball characteristics are pretty encouraging. He's obviously done it in the past. Hits the ball exceptionally hard. His exit velocities are certainly elite. And you know, we like the profile. He, you know, he has good on-base skills, pretty good contact skills as well. So you know, he's been an elite offensive performer and someone that we think can get back to that. He's still been good the last few years, but we think he can take one more step and has the opportunity and the potential to be the guy he was in 2017 with Miami. So even again, we'd be happy with what he did the last few years, but we do think there's that upside in him to be even better. As we heard from Anthopoulos a little bit earlier, it wasn't about just looking for one player at one position when it came to adding some offense to the lineup. But it does mean, with another outfielder on board, that third base appears to be a spring training competition between Johan Camargo and Austin Riley, both of whom have shown flashes of what they can do over the past couple of years. But now they'll be competing for playing time and fighting for bats, and that begins in spring training. Camargo has worked exceptionally hard this offseason. The reports on his health, his shape, just the work ethic, the conditioning. He looks very strong and very good. He's very motivated by the opportunity to compete for third base. I know Austin talked to him early in the offseason. Uh, he knew what he needed to work on and get his swing back, and we all know when he's right what he can do. So having two young players with upside that have a chance to be impact guys, and I think it'll be a great competition in camp with the two of them and knowing we have that depth. And the fact that they both can move around as well will put us in a good position. So, you know, beyond that, this signing with Ozuna, I think, strengthens our bench as well. I think we're just a more complete team from an offensive standpoint, and we know that we were going to need all these guys. There will be injuries. There will be dips in performance. So to have this kind of depth, as we've talked about since I've joined the organization, is imperative for us to try to be a contending club. So that's everything going on with the Braves and their signing of Marcel Ozuna. But I do want to shift gears right now and talk about the big story of the week in the baseball world. Thankfully, it had nothing to do with sign stealing, at least this week, although we'll get to that. But the Baseball Hall of Fame grew by two members and two very different members and different paths to the Hall of Fame. One, of course, for Derek Jeter, who gets in on his first time on the ballot. And, of course, Larry Walker, who took it down to the wire. And when I need to talk about Cooperstown, the Hall of Fame, and all the things that go into getting there, there's only one man I turn to, and that, of course, is Jay Jaffe. 
He is the author of the book, The Cooperstown Case Book. He also writes for Fangraphs, and Jay has done tremendous work on the Hall of Fame for a number of years now. So really excited to talk to you again, Jay, about what looks like a very interesting class of 2020. Yeah, okay, sounds good. It's good to be here. Well, it is that time of year again. Another Hall of Fame class was revealed this week by the baseball writers Derek Jeter. No surprise. Larry Walker, though, elected in his final year on the ballot, but I think these were two deserving candidates with two very different resumes. Were you surprised by the results this year in terms of the two that got in and maybe some who did not? You know, I think going in, we knew by the time the uh, election results, you know, the ballot tracking leading up to it suggested that it would be either one candidate or two. Uh, And there was some suspense with regards to both Walker and Jeter. Uh, Jeter as to whether he'd be unanimous. uh, Walker as to which side of the 75% line he'd end up on. And it figured uh, that he might well be within 10 votes either way. Uh, I predicted uh, within eight votes. And uh, obviously he cleared the bar by just six. So I wasn't too far off there. You know, so that was a surprise. I mean, a lot of us uh, who've been stumping for Walker for years certainly hoped that he would get in. But until Tim Mead started his uh, envelope presentation by saying that two members had gotten in, uh, there was really, you know, nobody knew what what the answer was. Walker himself all but conceded that he wasn't going to get in via a tweet in the afternoon. So, um, you know, we were all, I think, braced for that possibility. Yeah, and I thought it was really exciting to see Larry Walker get in. And when we talk about tracking the ballots, which a lot of folks around baseball fans, of course, uh, I think really get into it as well. It was interesting to see Walker get there because it wasn't too long ago that he was hovering, I think, below 20 percent on the writer's ballot. And I think a lot of that had to do with how congested the ballot has been over the past few years. That's finally starting to clear up. And do you think that might have played a role in seeing Walker get such a dramatic upswing of support? Maybe there had been people who just didn't have room on their ballots for him before. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. I mean, we've seen an unprecedented flood of candidates get elected over the last seven years, uh, 22 by the writers. Uh, And uh, it's been a response to this logjam and to some of the rule changes that have kind of put the pressure on voters, but also, you know, increased level of accountability, voters uh, publishing their ballots, defending them on social media and in their own publications and things like that. Um, You know, it's it's lent an urgency and I think a, a transparency to the process that wasn't there before that I think has kind of fueled all of this. But Walker was down to 10.2% in 2014. Um, And then that summer, the Hall of Fame made a rule change uh, that took five years of eligibility away from him. By my research, there's only one other candidate since 1966 when the writers returned to voting uh, annually uh, that ever got lower uh, than 10.2% and was still elected by the writers, and that was Bob Lemon who got 7% in 1966 and uh, uh, was eventually elected a decade later. He had the full 15-year run of eligibility that Walker did not. Yeah, it's an incredible rise in terms of how quickly it happened as well. And from what it sounds like, pretty rare, if not unprecedented, for Walker to do this. And I know we debate a lot about the Hall of Fame, the voting process, and in just about every possible fashion, somebody probably has a passionate opinion about it. But the unanimous argument was front and center, of course, with Derek Jeter. There's only been the one uh, guy that's made it in unanimously, and that, of course, happened with Mariano Rivera last year. But this time, there was one writer who did not vote for Jeter for whatever reason. Uh, we may not know who this is. We may not find out what the rationale was. But do you think it's too much being made of this and of voting percentages in general? You know, I think 
I think a little too much is made over it. I mean, I think it was interesting to see whether he would get there. We had another close call a few years ago when Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah. fell three votes short in 2016, and nobody ever found out who those two voters were. When you run the table on the public ballots, of which there's you know 200 plus uh, going in before the election, you know you start to think it's possible. And really, I mean, you know, without knowing what the motive was. Uh, behind the choice. I mean, I think some of that fuels the mystery. Was somebody legitimately, you know, strategizing, like they wanted to make sure that they got to vote for, say, I don't know, Billy Wagner and Bobby Abreu or something like that, uh, and figured Jeter didn't need the vote and they wouldn't be the only one uh, leaving him off? Or was it somebody who, you know, carried a grudge or just wanted to be a stick in the mud? I, I you know, I don't know. Um, that said, the, the unanimity thing is kind of a dumb tradition that goes all the way back to Ty Cobb and Babe yeah. Ruth not getting 100% in 1936. And, you know, the self-appointed guardians of the gate have always uh, found ways to dissent and prevent right. that from happening. So, I don't know, I think Jeter had it right when he said, look, I'm thinking of the ones who did vote for me, and, you know, I'm not focused on that. I'm glad to be in. And, and you know, it was, I think, typical of the uh, aplomb with which he handled just throughout every controversy in his career, sidestepping it and, and focusing uh, instead on something else. Yeah, I would agree. It was very Derek Jeter in the way he handled it and pretty gracious as well. And I would imagine if you've got the biggest accolade you're ever going to get for your career, focusing on the one person that may have uh, not seen it the same way everybody else did probably isn't something he wants to spend his time on anyway. Um, Jay, let me ask you, Kurt Schilling got close this year and seems like a lock moving forward to get into the Hall of Fame. But as we well know, he's been a polarizing figure in the years since his retirement. But Schilling has, I think, the most compelling Hall of Fame case for any starting pitcher on the ballot right now, not named Roger Clemens. I'm not really sure why it's taken so long, other than the fact that he kind of hasn't run the best PR, if you will, in his uh, candidacy for Cooperstown. Yeah, he's been limited. I mean, he's had, I think, two times he's lost at least nine points, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that's tough to do uh, and still be a viable candidate. But, you know, he's got a unique capacity for self-sabotage, and uh, it's set him back. It's made people, uh, you know, reluctant to vote for him even when they've got room on the ballot. But let's remember, though, that when Kurt Schilling first became eligible in 2013, We'd seen exactly one pitcher with fewer than 300 wins elected in the in the previous uh, 23 years, 22 years, something like that, and that was Burt Blylevin, and it took him until his 14th year. You know, the idea that Schilling with his 211 wins but strong postseason resume was a well-qualified Hall of Famer was not foremost in everybody's mind. I think he got something like 29% yeah. in his first year of eligibility. Now, the argument for that type of pitcher, you know, low 200 wins, but strong uh, wins above replacement, you know, relative ERA, strikeout to walk ratio, things like that has changed. And we've seen, you know, uh, a handful of guys, uh, Pedro Martinez, John Smoltz, uh, Mike Messina, get in with fewer than 300 wins. And I think that bodes well for, you know, at least uh, uh, the next wave of pitchers, and Schilling would be among them. But, you know, it wasn't really until about, you know, a few years into his candidacy that the paradigm for a, you know, an electable starting pitcher began to shift. And we've been tracking this for a long time, not just for guys like Schilling that maybe had to build some momentum and had some hurdles to clear when it came to other aspects of their career that were in question. But Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds remain kind of locked in that middle ground among voters. I mean, they're an either or scenario, it seems like. Uh, very hot and cold, and their eligibility is running out, of course. As you mentioned, five years was lopped off of your eligibility window to be on the ballot. Jay, do you see any way that the writers put one or both of these guys in the hall before they fall off the ballot? 
Well, I think it's pretty inseparable. Uh, you know, they're pretty inseparable, and I, I don't really understand why a voter can, you know, how a voter can really distinguish between the two of them, leaving one off or on. I mean, they both have strong allegations of PED use that date back to a time before there was testing and penalties in place. They both have some icky off-the-field stuff that might give a voter pause, yeah. even uh, if they are more forgiving uh, on the PED question. Also, they've got overwhelming statistical cases. Um I think they've really run into some problems here. They've only gained, I think, it's six or seven points in the last three cycles. Their momentum is all but halted. They made two big jumps, uh, one from the sunsetting of voters in, in 2015. Uh, voters who'd been inactive for more than 10 years lost the ballots, and they had something like, uh, I don't know, less than 10% support uh, net on the, uh, uh, the ballots lost. Between that and the 2017 election of Bud Selig, who presided over the whole steroid era uh, and caused people to question, you know, well, hey, if the commissioner who oversaw this and who failed to act mm-hmm. in ways that could have, uh, you know, minimized this crisis or, 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 or more proactively addressed it, if he's going in uh, rubber stamped by the era committee, then, then why are we sitting here debating Bonds and Clemens sure. uh, to such a degree? They should all be in is a more coherent argument. So those two things really shifted the landscape and caused them to surge from mid-30s to over 50%. But it's slow going since then. Joe Morgan's letter uh, pleading with voters not to elect steroid-linked candidates, and I think that kind of helped to stop these guys in their, in their tracks as far as some of the voters were concerned. Obviously, they're up above 60%. The only other candidates who've gotten above 60% and failed to gain election, there's one, there's Gil Hodges. You know, so but they're they're in kind of a unique spot. They have to, I think, gain about sixty votes over the next. I don't see uh, the math really working in their favor. That's got to flip a lot of no's to yeses. Uh, they only, I think, net uh, Barnes did that with two voters and and Clemens with one of the fifty one or fifty two percent of the electorate that revealed their ballots before wow. uh, before publication. Whereas uh, and even showing only flipped about eight or nine voters, if I'm not mistaken. But you know, guys like Walker and some of the down ballot guys were flipping thirty, forty guys. Uh, you know, minds were changing on on the front, and uh, something has to happen to change people's minds if they're going to get there. I, there may be a, a group of voters who you know has intended all along only to vote for them in the tenth year. You know, kind of a last minute holdout type thing. Uh, but I don't think that block is big enough to put them over itself. You know, something has to happen, whether it's a rule change, uh, whether it's the two of them going on their own, you know, personal apology tours uh, or what. The equation needs to change if they're going to have a hope of getting in. Yeah, it seems like they're going to be looking for perhaps some kind of Hail Mary if they're going to clear that bar and flip enough ballots to get in. Uh, You mentioned down-ballot guys that did flip a lot of no's to yeses or at least got a few new votes and renewed support. Omar Vizquel and then also Andrew Jones are two guys that are known pretty much synonymously for what they brought defensively speaking. It's kind of a hot debate, and obviously being down in Atlanta, there are a lot of people that would like to see Andrew Jones get uh, his deserved recognition for being perhaps the greatest defensive center fielder that many of us will ever see. Uh, can you tell like a discernible difference, whether it's positional value or longevity perhaps for Vizquel, that really has people look at two defensive specialists so differently? It has everything to do, I think, with longevity. I mean, you know, and longevity, let's face it, is the driver for even some of the Hall's more egregious mistakes you know, big career totals. The fact that Andrew Jones's career fell off a cliff after age right. 30, but Vizquel played until he was 44, tells some voters a lot, or speaks to some voters in a certain way that they still saw value in him in ways that they did not with Jones. And, 
you know, the fact that Vizquel did his best to stay in shape that long and keep himself a viable player, whereas Jones, you know, put on a lot of weight, some of which may have had to do with uh, uh, lower body injuries, some of which, you know, apparently may have just been, you know, his own whatever, his, his own decision to kind of losing that edge. I don't know. I don't want to put myself inside of his head, but the, right. the facts are the facts. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's got a real problem. You know, the big thing, I feel like what's being missed a lot with Jones um, and I'm a proponent of him. I've gone both ways uh, on my virtual ballots with him just based on whether I had enough room to include him. Uh, I think I, I left him off last year but kept him on the other two years. I don't think he gets enough credit. You know, those when the Braves had that big three of uh, Smoltz and Maddox and Glavin, only Smoltz was really a strikeout pitcher. The other two guys, they worked the strike zone as well as any pitchers who've ever lived, but they were guys who had modest strikeout rates and they put the ball in play a lot. And during their time with the Braves, nobody did more to save those runs for them. The runs that didn't score than Andrew Jones, thanks to, uh, you know, his positioning and, and, and his jumps on the ball and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, the Braves long run of success owes a lot more to him than I think has been credited for. And maybe if they'd won more than one world series while he was there, uh, that would be reflected in the esteem with which he's held by voters. But he did make a nice gain this year, and uh, you know I think he could continue to gain traction. But I think it's more like uh, getting closer to 50% before his 10 years ends on the ballot than getting up to 75%, because there's a lot of resistance to overcome. Yeah, no, there certainly is, and he's not alone, of course, in the pursuit of trying to get to that 75% bar. And some guys obviously don't get there, but there are other ways to gain election to the Hall of Fame. And Ted Simmons was elected by the Modern Era Committee this year. He's been quite candid that analytics really revived his Hall of Fame case. I know you've written about him, of course, but can you tell us a little bit about why Ted Simmons finally got the call to the Hall this year? Yeah, that is something that I have been, you know, it's a drum I've been banging for a long time, wrote about him in the Cooperstown casebook. You know, Simmons went one and done on the ballot in, uh, I think it's 1994, his only year on the writer's ballot got less than 5% of the vote. Obviously that was an injustice considering, uh, how, you know, this is a guy with over 2,400 hits, uh, great, uh, batting line, very high up in the switch hitter rankings at the time he retired. I think he was third in hits among all switch hitters, uh, at the time he retired, just didn't get the time of day for voters and then kind of fell into oblivion, uh, because, when a player falls off the writer's ballot, he can't be considered by the Veterans Committee or the ERA committees until the end of what would have been his eligibility window expires. So he was a forgotten man. And most guys who fall off the ballot in the first year don't, never even get on an ERA committee ballot. Uh, it took quite a battle just to include him on those ballots. But, you know, it, it helps to know the people that are involved in the ballot construction process. And, and uh, um, one of those uh, was... Uh, uh, Rick Hummel of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, uh, former Spink Award winner. And, you know, I, I don't think you have to think too hard to realize that that probably had something to do with his at least getting on the ERA committee ballots. Mm-hmm. He was on four times, and, and uh, in uh, 2018, he came one vote short. That was the ballot where Alan Trammell and Jack Morris were elected. And so, you know, going in this year, while it was extra crowded because Lou Whitaker, another guy who'd found himself in Simmons' position, finally got his chance to be on a ballot for the first time. Uh, and Marvin Miller had his seventh time on the ballot. Right. Uh, it was Simmons and Miller, both of whom missed by one vote at some point previously, that got the nod from the committee and uh, advanced. So maybe he was due. It's a wonderful thing. I know that obviously not everybody's happy about it because their own candidates got snubbed, whether it's Whitaker or Dwight Evans, who was on his first ballot. 
since uh, falling off the writer's ballot. But uh, just a great thing. I mean, Catcher is underrepresented in the hall, and, and he's one of the best. Yeah, no doubt about that. And I think that there's a lot of nuanced arguments to be made for a lot of guys. And it was a pretty stacked ballot with just the talent of the players on the ballot, not to mention having Marvin Miller on there. A lot of people that had great careers and gave a lot to either their teams or the sport as a whole, which, of course, is how you get consideration to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, Just one more for you, Jay. Many folks feel like the Modern Era Committee got it right by electing Simmons, of course, electing Miller as well, but may have missed the mark by electing Harold Baines. Are you a fan of the revamp committees? Do you feel like they're trending in the direction of being able to do things that before they were restructured may have been missing on for quite some time? Yeah, I think they've done more good than harm in this most recent iteration, which started in 2017. I don't like the fact that that, uh, executives and managers are vying for the same ballot space as the players are. Um, That, to me, is a problem. Uh, We've got a lot of managers that are going to be getting in the way of – uh, on the today's game ballot, which is guys uh, whose biggest impact came from 1988 onward, going back to Walker, that was one of the big fears is that, you know, if he came a handful of votes short, uh, his next opportunity would be on a 2022 today's game ballot, but he'd also be up against Fred McGriff, uh, whose 493 home runs are kind of tailor-made for that kind of committee sure. situation, uh, even though he doesn't fare great in the advanced metrics. Uh, but he'd also have to deal with Lou Pinella, who missed by one vote last time, Bruce Bochy, who just retired and has three championships to his name, possibly other managers too, like Jim Leland, who won uh, World Series uh, with teams in both leagues. Um, You know, it's not easy uh, to figure out uh, how to go about these elections. But I think considering that the previous iteration of the era committees, uh, which just cycled through three eras uh, uniformly uh, and failed to elect a single living candidate during their six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, a single living ex-player candidate, sorry, just to be clear. They elected living managers and things like that. Um, was not working well, and this is working better. And, yeah, the Baines election was regrettable, but, uh, for the you know, it was, it was great to see Alan Trammell go in. Uh, I had no real problem with Lee Smith getting in. So I think uh, they're on the right track, at least, and I'm hopeful that uh, that continues with the election of Dick Allen uh, next winter. Yeah, I think Dick Allen, obviously, is a guy that many people have looked at for quite some time, and maybe he's getting a fresh set of eyes on him. And, of course, again, being down here in Atlanta, I've always got my fingers crossed for perhaps that election that goes the way of Dale Murphy because he's given yeah. a lot to the game both on the field and off, I feel like. Yeah, you know, Dale Murphy, thinking back to the Baines one, when Murphy was on this year's ballot, and you know, last year when Baines got elected, I was thinking to myself, and I said it in many, many of any, look, if Harold Baines is getting in, why are we nitpicking Dale Murphy? Yeah. Dale Murphy obviously had just, you know, a much greater impact on the game. My jaw system does not value him particularly highly because of his short career, but, you know, that seven-year peak, that stretch that he was among the best in the game where he won the two MVP awards and had a couple home run titles, was excellent. And if the committee wants to smile on him, you know, and avoid another Baines-like mistake, I'd have far less problem with that than I would the election of another Baines type. Oh, I absolutely uh, hope that happens, and I hope that we're able to talk about that sometime down the line. We'll see if Dale Murphy's able to uh, get over the hump in the Modern Era Committee. Jay, I appreciate all your time, of course. I mentioned you wrote the Cooperstown Casebook, which is available everywhere now. Tell folks a little bit about the premise of the book and, of course, where they can pick up their copy. All right. Well, this book was a summary of about a decade and a half worth of my Hall of Fame research. It was published in 2017. Uh, with the election of Walker, seven of the 14 players that I profiled at length, guys that, you know, to me felt like it was an injustice that they were outside the Hall, 
for some of them at least, Mariano Rivera is kind of a gimme. Let's yeah. let's let's let's, <laughs> let's, let's not, okay. not all of them were were long shots. But Edgar Martinez, Larry Walker, Tim Raines, Alan Trammell, these guys were long shots at the time that the book was being produced, and they, and they've all since gotten in. And that's to me that's kind of remarkable. I cover every player in that who's already in the Hall of Fame as well as the top candidates outside it. Everybody in gets a couple hundred words about their careers, uh, a lot of stats, a lot of rankings. I went at length on 14 guys. I went in brief on a, a bunch of other guys that are now uh, surfacing on these era committee ballots, or some of them are just retiring. Uh, also had some other essays on like the long history of the voters' mistreatment of third basemen uh, centered around Ron Santo mm-hmm. and the long battle to get Burt Blylevin elected and, and the Blylevin versus Jack Morris arguments that raged and were kind of a shorthand for the old school and new school debates uh, 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 a decade ago. Well, thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. I know this is a busy time of year for you, a very busy week for you, but I always love uh, talking about the Hall of Fame with you and getting your insight on the processes, the candidates, and pretty much everything in between. He is Jay Jaffe. You can pick up the Cooperstown Casebook wherever books are sold. And, of course, be sure you follow him on Twitter at J underscore Jaffe and, of course, his work on Fangraphs. You can always find that uh, good stuff as well. Jay, thank you so much. I hope that things slow down a little bit for you and you get a chance to relax a little bit before the next Hall of Fame cycle. All right, Grant. Thanks a lot. Always fun to chat about the Hall of Fame with Jay Jaffe. We'll continue our Hall of Fame talk as I welcome Bill Rowland into the show right now as we jump into our starting nine. It is, of course, nice to kind of get back to the starting nine after what was a pretty deep dive into the Astros sign-stealing scandal last week. So now we get to kind of hop around and focus on some of the other stories across Major League Baseball, and I don't think either one of us mind that very much. Yeah, absolutely. Good to talk to you again, Grant. And uh, thanks to everybody out there listening again to us this week. It's nice to talk a little bit more about baseball itself yes. on the field and not necessarily the stuff that's going on behind the scenes and everything else. So, yeah, let's get to it. I'm excited. All right. Well, let's lead things off with a little bit of Hall of Fame talk. It was no surprise to see Yankees shortstop Derek Jeter make it in on the first ballot. There was one lone rider out there, though, Bill, who did not vote for Derek Jeter. One out of 397 ballots cast did not include Jeter's name. It's a little thing that has sparked a lot of debate. Do you think we as a collective make too much about the unanimous election? After all, it had never happened before last year. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this last week, as a matter of fact, about, you know, some of the older baseball writers being the gatekeepers or whatever. And there's been a long tradition of a lot of people saying, hey, you know what? If Babe Ruth couldn't have been a unanimous Hall of Famer, then nobody deserves to be unanimous. And some people kept that and they wouldn't. They knew guys were going to get in, so they would be the one to leave them off the ballot. You think about all the greats in the past, you know, Nolan Ryan and Willie Mays and Ted Williams. None of these guys were unanimous inductees into the Hall of Fame. So it's kind of silly. I don't think it's a big deal because, look, Jeter was getting in regardless if it was one guy, ten guys, whatever it was. But, yeah, at some point, whoever – I just want to know, is the guy who didn't vote for Derek Jeter the same guy that did vote for Brad Penny? Because if that's the case, that guy needs to have his ballot pulled. It's that To me, honestly, Grant, that bothers me more than Jeter not being unanimous. Guys that are voting for, like, Raul Banez and Brad Penny, when it's they're not Hall of Famers. I don't care what relationship you have with the guy or whatever it may be, the re- there, there's no reason to vote for Brad Penny to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I'm not going to disagree with that. I don't think Brad Penny has a Hall of Fame case, and I don't think Brad Penny was expecting to get a whole bunch of votes. But being on the ballot in one way, shape, or form, I think is 
I don't want to say a celebration, but recognition that a player did enough to garner consideration for it. And I can understand writers who covered certain guys for long periods of time, giving them that courtesy vote is kind of that one final tip of the cap. And I don't have a problem with that, except that it runs up against the fact you have a 10-player limit. If you really feel like you want to do that, that's fine. But if you're doing that at the expense of someone who deserves your vote or the consideration for your vote, that to me kind of starts to weaken the process. But that's just one caveat in all of this. And we haven't found out who this is. We may not find out who this is just kind of based on the early rumblings about it. It could have been someone just looking for some attention. It could have been a younger baseball writer that decided, hey, you know what? Uh, Derek Jeter is just one of those guys that was overrated and I'm just not going to vote for him. Everybody else is and thought that maybe three or four other people would do that and it wouldn't matter. But there were three people out there that did not vote for Ken Griffey Jr. a few years ago, and that didn't really sit well with people. In addition to the fact that every Hall of Famer not named Mariano Rivera has not been unanimous. I think we make a lot about this every single year, and it's exhausting to me. And I said this on Twitter as well. This percentages stuff and the first ballot thing and the unanimous thing, they're really, really tired tropes. I mean, if you get into the Hall of Fame, let's focus on that. But because we're in baseball and we count numbers and percentages and things like that, I think it's natural that folks gravitate toward that and try to extrapolate what it tells us about that player's legacy. But I didn't need to see the voting percentage to know Derek Jeter's a Hall of Famer. Right, absolutely. And I think you make a great point. I've never understood, um, and we'll talk a little bit about this, I'm sure. I've never understood that, oh, this guy's not a first ballot Hall of Famer. He shouldn't get in until his third or fourth. Well, he's either a Hall of Famer or he's not. Right. I've never, I I don't get that idea. Maybe somebody has a better explanation where they can say, well, you know, Derek Jeter is a guy who should be a first ballot, but this guy wasn't as good as Jeter, so he should only go in the second time or third time he's on the ballot. The guy's either a Hall of Famer or he's not. I understand, again, if you have 10 votes and for whatever reason, the guy's down the, you know, maybe eighth on somebody's ballot, maybe he was 11th on somebody else's ballot, but a Hall of Famer is a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. They don't really designate, okay, this is the wing for the first ballot guys, this is the wing for the right. fifth ballot guys. So you're in, you're in, I mean, in yeah. my mind. No, I agree, and that's just one of the many, many, many Hall debates. And there's two schools of thought to this. Number one, it's really exhausting, and some of this stuff really gets people wound up, and I don't know that there's really a right or wrong answer per se for a lot of the things that people like to debate about this, but it does get people talking about baseball, and I do think that that's a good thing. And I will take Hall of Fame debate endlessly for however long we have to do it over having to go through another sign-stealing scandal performance-enhancing drugs, gambling, whatever it is. I mean, this is the part of the news cycle where I can live with the hot takes and some of the other things. But, you know, you had a really fascinating ballot here because Derek Jeter, who we've just talked about, and Larry Walker, who we're about to get to, one guy goes in first ballot, one guy took it down to the wire. So a Hall of Famer is a Hall of Famer, and I like that both these guys got in. Well, there you go. Let's have that debate then. Larry Walker, just the second Canadian-born player to ever be elected into the Hall of Fame. His plaque, though, will have a Rockies cap, not an Expos one. We like to make a big deal about all sorts of things when it comes to the Hall of Fame. First ballot, fifth, last ballot in Larry Walker's case. Did he make the right decision going with a Colorado hat rather than an Expos cap, being that he is Canadian? I think that he did. It would have been a really nice nod to the Expos because that is where his career began and where he did start to establish himself as a a really good Major League Baseball player. But when I think of Larry Walker and his big years and his big numbers, he was part of this Blake Street Bombers crew in Colorado. That's where I think he really made his legacy and 
that was a, kind of a double-edged sword as well, was, oh, well, he was a great hitter in Colorado. Aren't most great hitters even better when they're in Colorado? But I think Walker transcended that. I think he was absolutely a deserving Hall of Famer, and it took him a long time to get from that 10 15% on the ballot up to the 75%. So I like having this in the player's hand. The Hall has the final call on what hat you're going to wear. But if I think of the legacy of Larry Walker, I think it was really cemented in Colorado, even though he started out with an exposed cap because he was there for, what, five or six years. Yeah, six years in Montreal, and unfortunately, he would have been an even bigger legend, I think, for the Expos had the strike not occurred in 94. Sure. People may not remember, he was one of the guys on that team that was like 74 and 40 when the strike hit. They were running away uh, with the National League at that point, hit 322 that year. Um, but I'm with you. Uh, he made his bones in Colorado. That's where he won his MVP um, that's where he had most of his all-star appearances with, came with Colorado. And yeah, maybe it was before, you know, they were trying to fix the ball. So it wasn't all juiced up when you were batting there, you know, the years that he hit 360, 379, I think one year, yeah. um, for him. I mean, so clearly Colorado helped, but I mean, he was hitting 322 in Montreal. So, I mean, it wasn't like he suddenly went from a 250 hitter to a 350 hitter because he went to Colorado. So, uh, I'm with you. I think they made the right decision. And like you said, ultimately it's up to the hall, but I imagine if he had said, Hey, I'd like to go in as an expo, they would have let him go in as an expo. Yeah. I think they would have accommodated that request. And again, I, I like both of these guys. Jeter didn't have a choice because he spent his whole career with one club, but for some of these guys that bounced around their legacy has quite a few chapters written in possibly quite a few different cities. So an interesting debate, but one ultimately I'm glad that Walker got to make the choice and the hall was able to sign off on that. Now, not as much fun. Let's get back into uh, what's probably going to be sticking around for a while, and that, of course, is the sign-stealing scandal. And right now, what happened to the Houston Astros? We're awaiting some word on what's going to happen out of Boston, but Commissioner Rob Manfred said MLB has no plans to strip World Series titles from the Astros in 2017 or the Red Sox the year after, saying that they'll, quote, follow the long tradition in baseball of not trying to change what happened, end quote. I did not expect trophies to be handed over to the Dodgers, despite the L.A. City Council's request. Does this surprise you at all that Major League Baseball is just taking this hardline stance that they just weren't going to move any trophies to the runner-up city, so to speak? No, not at all. And and I think Rob Manford probably has it right in this because, okay, if you strip Houston and Boston of you know two of the last three World Series, the 17 and 18, well, what happens if you come up with information from 10 years ago yeah. that somebody cheated? What happened, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we see, you know, all these different things of guys coming out and saying, oh, yeah, we used to do it this way. We did it that way. Now, some of that was just regular season games, but there were instances. I mean, there was a big rumor of the shot heard around the world that they had. Obviously, the Giants were using binoculars or a telescope from yeah, center field and, and and signaling to their hitters. So you're going to take that. I mean, you can't. You start going down that road, and then almost every single result comes into question. Yeah. So I'm not surprised at all. And it's, to, in my mind, the right thing to do. It will be tainted in the eyes of fans, and that's perfectly okay. That's great you know, barroom debate when it comes down to these types of things. That's part of the reason that we love sports because you can say, oh, there's an asterisk next to these guys because right. of this happening. People say that here in D.C. People that don't like the football team here in town will say, oh, well, you, you know, two of your wins were in strike season. So that doesn't really count. You didn't have to play a full season. 
That makes a lot of fun for debates, and that's what makes sports fun to me. So I'm not surprised, and I think it should stay the way it is. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I just don't think it's going to set a good precedent if you start doing stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Jim Crane, the Astros owner, spoke to reporters this week. He says his team will apologize for signed stealing when they report to spring training. Does the ownership mandating an apology kind of take the edge off of it? Is it helping their public image, or do you think this is just a way for them to try to put it behind them once they get to spring training? I think this is what the owner would like to see happen, and that is some contrition, I guess, or a way to – I don't know if extend an olive branch or simply just fall on the sword, so to speak, because that really hasn't happened from a player standpoint and certainly didn't happen at that Astros fan fest last week, whether or not this happens. And I'm assuming that it will, if Jim Crane wants it to, I don't think this is going to provide either the clarity nor the really the apology that the general public is going to be looking for. So this might be a bit misguided, so to speak. I can appreciate that Jim Crane wants some level of accountability, but from a larger scale perspective, There has been no accountability thus far. And I don't know if you saw this earlier on Thursday. Scott Boris, the super agent who has thoughts about everything that baseball does, good, bad, and different, mostly bad and indifferent, happened to say that, well, the players really were let down by the system, so they don't owe anybody an apology, which I thought was even by Scott Boris standards. And I know he's used to selling things to people for different prices. I'm not buying that one for one single second. Yeah, and I think, was it Alex Bregman that – had the press conference earlier this week. Uh, I think it was Bregman that that he basically said, uh, we're just going to get to spring training. And that's all he would do when they asked him. Yeah, about it. it was just like, over. we're just moving on to spring training or whatever yeah, it was. Yep. That rang so hollow. You know, at some point you just got to say, hey, look, you know what? What went down happened and it shouldn't have. And, and you know, we're, we're trying to move ahead of it and it will never happen again. I mean, at some point you've got to take responsibility for what went on. And to sit there and, and basically do a Bill Belichick of, you know, we're on to Cincinnati or whatever that yeah. famous quote is, yep. it, it's a bad look because you got caught red-handed. And let's face it, he was one of the guys that, you know, doing the bat flip in the World Series and everything else. Not a good look for him, not a good look for the Astros. So I, I think, honestly, I think Jim Crane is embarrassed by this. And I think he's trying to do everything he can, as you said, to just, get it behind them and move on. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's had its tentacles all through the game. As a matter of fact, the Mets are going to have to name a new manager, and it's reportedly going to be Luis Rojas just one week after dismissing Carlos Beltran from the job because he was the lone player who was linked by name to the Astros sign-stealing scandal. Rojas is a 13-year coaching veteran in the Mets organization, very well-liked, which I'm sure they need, and they needed to move on quickly, I think, to address the loss of Beltran and all the questions that come with it. Yeah, I like the hiring, to be honest with you, Grant, because it, the Mets could have gone out and looked at a Dusty Baker. And, and the rumors were that he was perhaps, you know, a, a link to that job. They could have gone out and gotten some other guys that have had Major League Baseball experience. I like to see organizations reward guys who have been through the trenches, have done all the things of moving up through the ranks. I think Rojas may end up being a pretty good hire for them. I wasn't sold on Beltran, to be honest with you. So I like this hire for the Mets. I think it's good because he's within the organization. He knows those guys. They have a comfortability level with him that somebody coming in at this late date from the outside may not. Now, while I don't think the Mets are contenders this year, 
I like the hire, and I applaud the Mets for doing it this way because I think this was a, a nice thing to do and a smart thing to do for a guy who's given them the last 13 years of his coaching career. Yeah, having somebody in-house that you feel like you can trust that has built up some credibility inside the organization, you have to start putting your house back together, I think, internally. And while Beltron's dismissal may not have thrown the Mets for quite as big a loop as, say, getting your GM and your manager both suspended for – a year like the Astros are dealing with and whatever comes down the line for the Red Sox. Clearly, three weeks before spring training, this is not a change that you wanted to make. The uh, optics of it from a public relations standpoint, not anything the Mets wanted to be involved in. And I think it's good that they were able to move quickly. And from what it sounds like, including some of the players who've chimed in on social media, including Pete Alonso, this is a very well-deserved promotion and job opportunity for Luis Rojas, who has done it you know, through the minor leagues and paid his dues and Hey, in Atlanta, we got a guy that spent basically four decades in the Braves organization as a coach and finally got a shot as a manager because somebody had to do it. And Brian Snitker stuck around for the last few years. So who knows? Maybe this is the start yeah. of a long tenure for Luis Rojas. It, yeah, and Atlanta hit a home run, I think, with their manager. I, I would assume they're pretty happy with the way things I have gone so. with him down there. So hopefully Rojas is the same thing. Let's head back to Colorado. They had good news, obviously, with Larry Walker going into the Hall of Fame. Some bad news and rumors coming out this week where third baseman Nolan Arenado feels disrespected by the team following a lousy 2019 season and some trade speculation that was thrown about. It feels more and more like this is going to end with him being on the move, but where they had all the leverage before him coming out and saying that he doesn't, that he feels disrespected, doesn't necessarily want to be there. Now that leverage may be gone. Is he in Colorado or is he end up somewhere else? By spring training. I think it could be somewhere else in the next few weeks, but this might take weeks and or months to play out. We don't really know how it's going to go. Arenado, the most recent thing he said was, hey, I'm going to focus on you know being the best player I can be for my teammates and you know getting back to work when it's time to play baseball. But you could tell just from the couple of reports that came out that he was none too pleased about last year and none too pleased about the fact that the Rockies really haven't done much to improve themselves. And I would assume that in the midst of all this, and by assume, I mean, I think it's been said, the Rockies sold Nolan Arenado that, hey, you're going to be the centerpiece. We're going to spend money. We're going to make moves. We're going to contend. That's why we want you here for eight years. That did not happen last year, and you can have a bad year. Sometimes things just go wrong because I thought the Rockies would be a wild card contender last year. They weren't, but they have been almost inactive when it comes to doing anything to make their club even just a modicum better than they were a year ago. So, I would imagine that a lot of tensions have been building over time, but to get back to the leverage question about all this when it comes to what the Rockies have and what Arenado has, I think Nolan Arenado has kind of been a similar situation with a little bit more acrimony than Giancarlo Stanton was in in Miami when he had a full no-trade clause and used it to steer himself into the Bronx. And I think that's exactly what Arenado can do, pick the city he wants to go to, and then it's kind of in the Rockies' court to make a deal happen if they can. And that's a great point, but if you're the Rockies, you still can't just give him away for 50 cents on the dollar. The problem is, what city would he, Arenado, want to go to that also has a need at third base? I imagine he wants to go to a contender. I mean, you look at everything that's gone down, I would think Atlanta maybe would make the most sense, although they've Got a couple of guys that they can, uh, you know, try to uh, plug and play there at third base and and probably still be okay. So I guess the bigger question is, sure, he may have all the leverage over Colorado, but where can he go? Where can he point to 
that's going to make sense for him as a player and the team that he's going to. So he's not in the same situation a couple years from now where he's the highest paid guy in the team and the team's a 500 ball club. Well, the other thing is he can opt out of his contract in two years as well. So that's something clubs have to think about. So the Rockies, I think, have painted themselves into a corner here because they're going to have to include money, I would think, in most deals unless Arenado tells his new club, all right, we can scrap the opt-out. But he'll still have a full no trade, so that team won't be able to just deal him away if they decide that they want to without having to go through a similar situation. So, again, I look at what the Rockies were trying to do a year ago this time and look at where they are right now, and I just have to wonder to myself, how did they bungle this thing so badly with somebody that they just gave an eight-year contract for upwards of 250 or more million dollars? It just... It boggles the mind that they could do this in not even a full calendar year from the time the ink was drying on that contract last spring training. They've just managed to really put themselves in a place where you said they don't want to give them away for 50 cents on the dollar, but they may end up having to do just that. Yeah, and it's a situation where obviously the Dodgers are still the class of that division. San Diego, with a lot of the young talent that they have, may be moving up and and passing Colorado. And you wonder if ownership doesn't see that and figure that they need to go into a full-bloom rebuild, and he's just not part of that plan, which that would be a disaster for them. But look at that division. I mean, Arizona, San Diego, the Dodgers, I think all right now better than Colorado. Yeah, and I don't think you're wrong about that whatsoever. So we'll continue to monitor where Nolan Arenado might be going and when he might be going there, and he might not leave the National League West if the Dodgers decide that they want to make a run at him. I would not rule that out at all. Meanwhile, over in Boston, the Red Sox are awaiting the findings of MLB's investigation into their part of perhaps some sign stealing that went on back in 2018. They're also mulling the future of longtime second baseman Dustin Pedroia. A team spokesperson confirmed a report that Pedroia suffered a severe setback rehabbing his left knee over the offseason. 36 years old, two years and $25 million remaining on his contract, but Pedroia has played just nine games over the past two seasons because of a string of knee ailments and knee surgeries. Uh, Bill, I've got to wonder if this could be the end of the line for one of the all-time great Red Sox players. Yeah, I'm not going to tell the guy to walk away from $25 million when it's not my money, but you have to look at it and figure he's now going into, what, year 36 for him, age 36. Uh, All those knee surgeries, it's taken away, I'm sure, a lot of the range that he had at second base, and he was one of the best defensive second basemen uh, when he was healthy and in his prime. He was a tremendous asset there at second base, pretty good with the bat as well. Again, if it's if it's up to the Red Sox, I think they'd rather have him go out now and retire, not because they're going to save the $25 million, but just the more he tries to slog through this the next couple of years, in my mind, the more he taints his legacy uh, there in Boston and you hate to see that with a guy who was a big part of a couple of World Series winning teams for them. Um, you know, was an was an MVP, was Rookie of the Year, yeah. uh, in back to back years. It, it would, as a Red Sox fan, it would be a disappointment for me to see him try to slog through this, not be able to do it, and leave a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths when he's trying to go to spring training. You know, in 2021, as a 37, 38 year old and he can't move out there at second base. So, yeah, I, I think it might be the end of the line. I, I guess the last report that I saw was that he was re, he was going to sit down with his family, sit down with team management, try to figure something out. 
he's made a lot of money. It's it's yeah. not about the money. Again, it, who am I to say the $25 million you can walk away from, but it's not like he needs the $25 million to survive. He's made plenty of money over his career. So selfishly, I'd like to see him walk away. I think it could be a, you know, a, a nice fitting uh, tribute for him this year. They could bring him back to Fenway. And I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up, whether it's in Boston or another organization, you know, he played for Terry Francona for a long time. And, and Frank, when Francona was in Boston and Francona always talked about the, the competitive drive that Pedroia had, that he would make a very good manager someday, would not be surprised if Pedroia is in a dugout somewhere, somehow, whether it's in Boston or another organization, 10 years from now, we could see him uh, in charge of a major league club. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see because a lot of players, now that they make so much money during their playing career, they're not necessarily enticed to you know continue to live out of a suitcase. I know that's something Chipper Jones said when folks were asking do you want to manage or coach or you know, do you want to be the hitting coach? All these kind of questions. And he said, look, I want to just stop carrying a suitcase around and, you know, spending all that time on the road. And I think that, like you said, there could be a period of time that passes and perhaps Pedroia gets that itch again to be around the game. But I would think, and most contracts are like this, if you miss significant time, there's going to be some kind of insurance to recoup some of that money for the Red Sox. But I'm not sure what the limits and the terms are on that. But two years and $25 million is a lot. But if Pedroia feels like he's still got it in him to continue to try to get back, then I would imagine he's going to continue doing what he's done the past couple of years. But like you said, it is hard to watch. It's really unfortunate because of how good he was and how central he was to the Red Sox success for so long. He just hasn't been able to get out there and have the body be able to do what the mind probably still believes on some level that he can do if only he could get healthy again. Yeah, and he's a guy that, uh, again, the, the competitive streak in him is probably one of the things that he's wrestling with. I imagine that all athletes do when it comes close to the end of the line for them is, I, I think I can still do this. Yeah. You just wonder if the family and talking to them, if they're like, look, you've done enough. You have nothing left to prove in this game. Again, a two-time World Series champion, didn't play – uh, on that 2018, he was a member of the team, but didn't obviously play in 2018 when they won it, but was a big part of 07 and also 13 when they won the title. So, again, I can't put myself in, in his shoes. I have no idea what it's like to, to play a game at that elite level and then suddenly not be able to. But whatever he decides, I hope that it's something that he is fully trying to do for himself and what he thinks is best for him and his family, whether it's walking away or giving it one more go, because I'd hate for the guy to be conflicted, walk away too soon and then have regrets. You never yeah. want to have that happen. But no matter what happens, if he walks away now, he's had a fantastic career. He's not a hall of famer, but he is going to go down as one of the all time favorites for the Red Sox organization. No question about it. Yeah. 100% agree. He left it all out on the field. There was no question about what kind of competitor he was. And he certainly made the Red Sox better when he was able to suit up and play. All right. Another guy getting to the end of the line, but trying to maybe hold on for one more year. And it's in Atlanta where they have signed former Cy Young award winner, Felix Hernandez. It's only a minor league contract. King Felix hasn't been himself for the last couple of years in Seattle. Braves are going to give him a shot to earn a, a spot in the rotation coming out of spring. Nice move for Atlanta because it's a low-risk gamble, but does he still have enough to beat out any of those young arms down there with the Braves? I think that's something we're going to find out, and that Felix Hernandez, much like we said with Dustin Pedroia, you want to know if you do have that opportunity to maybe not get back to the level you were 
in your prime, but to go out and continue to contribute and play the game that you love. But you start to look back at the stats. I mean, you don't have to really peel back a lot of layers to this onion to see that right about the time that Felix turned 30 years old, everything seemed to just kind of slow down for him. He's been dealing with some injuries. He's also been pretty ineffective because his velocity has been dropping and his changeup just has not been that same electric pitch that it was during that six- or seven-year run, maybe a little bit longer, where he was quite possibly the best pitcher in baseball. So I'm fascinated to see what he has and what he's able to do and really what kind of adjustments he's able to make to kind of reinvent himself just a little bit because I do think he can pitch without the 95, but I don't think that he can if he cannot command better than he did a year ago and really the last couple of years, maybe finally instituting and making some changes that can allow him to maybe turn back the hands of time just a little bit if he's healthy. And that's going to be the other big question. Will he be able to maintain his health? That did not happen a year ago. Not sure what it's going to take this year to win a spot in rotation for Atlanta, but there's going to be a pretty good little competition going on between Sean Newcomb, Felix Hernandez, and several of the Braves' young prospects, some of whom have seen Major League time, others who may see Major League time before the year's over. It's a pretty crowded house if you're trying to win a spot in the Braves' rotation, and I'm interested to see what Felix brings to camp and what he's able to impart on some of these young pitchers as well. That's pretty valuable, too. Yeah, that may be the most valuable part is sitting there in spring training for two, three, four weeks, however long it is that he's with those guys, that he's going to be able to impart a lot of knowledge over what has been a 15-year career. But you look at the numbers, you go back to 2014, the ERA 2.14, then 3.53, then 3.82, 4 3.36, 5.55, 6.40. So every single year that number keeps going up and up and up, and the strikeouts per nine keep going down. He's obviously just not the same guy. It is actually, when you look at it, an amazing drop-off. As you mentioned, since he turned 30, but since he turned even 28 that year when he was spectacular with the with the 2.14 ERA, it has just been a slow decline straight down. There hasn't even been a blip in any of these seasons. It's just been straight downhill for him. So I think it's going to be tough for him to make the rotation. I don't even know. I would imagine there wouldn't even be room for him as like a long reliever or swingman type. Yeah. I'm not sure he would want to do that. So I think it's going to be tough. I think the Braves should try to get as much as they can out of him in spring training, not necessarily physically, but the mental side of the game for him to work with those younger pitchers. And look, who knows? If he gets beat out but he shows okay, maybe somebody else will pick him up on a one-year you know, uh, incentive-laden deal and he can stick around uh, in 2020. I just don't think that it's going to be with Atlanta. Yeah, I'm interested to see what exactly he's able to do. And again, it all comes down to health as far as whether or not he'll be effective He's going to have to be able to get out there every fifth day and compete to win that spot. But, I mean, you mentioned the numbers. We both talked about it. The ERA's climbing, hits per nine innings climbing, home runs per nine, walks per nine. Meanwhile, strikeouts continue to go down uh, over the last few years. So he may not be the same pitcher he was, but one thing I thought was really fascinating was having Cole Hamels and Felix Hernandez in your rotation. A lot of clubs would have liked to have had that not too long ago, but probably quite a few years ago. Now I look at, Mike Soroka and Max Fried, and I think, gosh, it'd be nice in about 15 years to be talking about those guys the way that we're talking about Hamels and Hernandez because they both have had great careers. Hamels obviously has managed to stay a little bit more healthy and more effective, but kind of fascinating to see two former All-Stars, two guys who have put together great careers, 
and all kind of coming full circle in Atlanta where they're able to mentor what could be some of the better young pitchers for the Braves over the next few years as their career unfolds. So an interesting opportunity, to say the least. No question, no question. And I wish him the best. I mean, if it works out and he can recapture some of the stuff, I think it would be a wonderful reclamation story for him and the Braves. I just think those young guys, as you mentioned, uh, are, are just going to end up being better than him in the long run. Uh, hey, Anibal Sanchez a couple of years ago was picked up off the scrap heap by the Braves with about, what, 10 days, maybe two weeks to go in spring training, and he was able to turn in a pretty good year and land himself with the Washington Nationals where he ended up being a big part of a World Series championship team. So stranger yeah, things have happened in Atlanta and spring training, or more specifically in Florida, wearing a Braves uniform in spring training. Speaking of which, we've got robots coming to a strike zone near you, sort of. MLB is going to experiment with the automated strike zone system in spring training. It will not be a full dress rehearsal, but they are going to at least test it out in these spring games. A lot of people want to give this a real shot to call balls and strikes, and it looks like we might be getting one step closer or at least to finding out, is this possible? Yeah, I'm not in favor of this. I just, I, Someone's got to explain to me how it's going to work right. instantaneously. That's my big thing because – if you're, you know, a catcher and there's a guy on first and it's a, you know, one out and a 3-2 pitch and the guy takes off, you're going to throw down there to second and maybe you throw it in center field and that guy goes to third where if it was ball 4 you don't throw it. Are they going to how quick are they going to know whether or not that was a strike or That's not true. a strike? That's my question. Is there are little nuances in the game like that that make this a real real conundrum for me and maybe somebody smarter than me has already figured this out but have they said how this is going to work other than well it'll be an automated strike zone no that's pretty much the long and short of it and really i think it's more of one of those it's almost a theory of we would like to try this out and how in the world do we get there i think they're gonna have to spend a lot on r&d to make this thing work for one of the reasons you just mentioned and it could change a lot of things that you just don't realize before you enact this so to me, and and maybe you're the same way about this, it's very frustrating to see really bad strike zones in the major leagues. And for some reason, it feels like it's happening a little bit more now than perhaps at any other time that I've watched baseball where I just look at it from the first inning on and I think, what an awful strike zone. And maybe that's supposed to be part of the game for some people. They like the human element. But I would just like perhaps to just maybe dial it in a little bit better where – there's some kind of fail-safe that makes sure that umpires are being trained and calling a strike zone that's just a little bit more consistent or at least consistent to what they call because sometimes I'll see things in the second or third inning and I'll be looking for it in the seventh inning and they don't get the call. And maybe it's the frustration that's built into that, the competitive juices that get flowing with people. And, of course, fans, just they just want the call, right, I think, more times than not. And that seems to be where this whole thing has come from is some very – wild inconsistency on some days that just doesn't seem to have a place in the game. So how do you eliminate that? Yeah. And I think you're right. If you remember back back grant, and I'm sure you do when it used to be, you had American league umpires and national league umpires, which isn't the case anymore. They're they, they do both leagues now uh, all the way across the board and the American league. That was always the talk in the World Series. It was, oh, was, is an American League umpire behind the plate or a National League umpire behind the plate? Because the strike zone, while it was by the rule book supposed to be the same, it was different. They called strikes differently in the American League than they did in the National League for whatever reason. I think you hit it on the head. The umpires need to be held more accountable 
when they have a terrible strike zone and it's consistently, look, a guy can have a bad game. Pitchers are going to have bad games. Hitters are going to have bad games because they're human. An umpire may have a bad game. But when it is consistently bad, that guy needs to be told to move on or he needs to be sent to the minors to adjust and figure it out. Whatever the case may be, I don't think there's enough accountability with the umpires in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's maybe the biggest thing about it is some level of accountability for – I've always had this saying and, and joked about this with people. You know who the good umpires are? Of course you don't. You don't know their names because you're not having right. to complain about them. But, you know, you have this handful of guys, and I'm not just going to you know, blast a bunch of them here, Angel Hernandez, C.B. Buckner, but there are guys that you look at that you just wonder every single night, what's this guy going to do that I'm going to look at and shake my head or that could cost my team, you know, possibly an inning, the game? Who knows? I mean, they do have obviously a direct outcome, an influence, I should say, on the outcome of the game. Right, and and – while the NFL, I think, has gotten gotten better as far as admitting when a referee or a line judge or whoever has made a bad call, and they, they'll send, it doesn't change the outcome of the game, and they send the letter uh, to the team and say, hey, sorry, in the third quarter of this game this week, we, this you're right, we blew this call, we're sorry. You never really hear that from Major League Not Baseball. Not at all. And, and that's a problem that they're basically, from the league office down, saying that these guys are infallible and that you cannot question that, you know, their decision, that's it, it's final, it's cut and dry. Well, it's not. And with all the technology that we have now, you can review pitches over and over again and see how bad a guy's strike zone is. Players aren't going to argue if you're giving a pitcher a ball or two off the plate on the outside, as long as you're also not giving the pitcher a ball or two inside off the plate as well they can adjust pitchers can also adjust if they know they're not getting the inside corner okay I'm gonna have to pitch to the outside Tom Glavin was one of the best at that by the way for folks down there in Atlanta of being able to adjust to what an umpire was going to give him the players just want consistency from inning to inning game to game the umpires in some cases aren't providing it to me that's a bigger problem they're trying to figure out robot umpires. Yeah, one other thing I will say about this and kind of my only other thought about it when we think about accountability and how do you raise that bar and raise that standard and maybe hold some umpires accountable is, and this I've had a couple different players over the years say this, if you opened up their locker room post game to reporters and they had to sit there and answer the same kind of questions that players do, it might bring them down a peg or two on, I don't want to say being overconfident, but it might just adjust the norm a little bit because they would have to answer the questions about some of these. And, uh, you know, the, on occasion you do hear from the umpire after some crazy play. I remember obviously Jim Joyce uh, in the uh, Armando Galarraga uh, perfect game that was right. not because of his call. And I look at Jim Joyce and I still to this day have a ton of respect for how he handled himself because that had to be heartbreaking humbling, humiliating, and a whole bunch of other things that don't begin with H. And I just really felt bad for him. But I also had a lot of respect for someone to come out and be accountable and say, I blew it. And because of that, this historic thing did not happen for this guy. He also happened to get paired with what seems to be one of the nicest guys ever to play Major League Baseball in Galarraga. So these things happen. I'm not saying that these guys have got to be perfect. Lord knows we're not all perfect. But there's got to be some more accountability 
on some of these guys and in some of these nights that somebody comes in and says, hey, come on over here. We got to look at this because this has got to get better. Yeah, no question. We'll see if Major League Baseball, if it doesn't go well in spring training with the with the robot umps, if they're going to have to just train. And and let's face it, guys, in any any job, men, women, whoever it is, when you've been a job for 20, 25, 30 years, at some point your production slips. And if you can't be up to the highest standard, then maybe it's time to retire. And I don't think Major League Baseball necessarily does a good job. Not sure. that I want guys pushed out. But you need to be evaluated every single year. And if you're not up to snuff, I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. It happens in every other type of occupation. It just doesn't seem – it's like these guys can just walk away when they want to. We never hear about Major League Baseball saying, you know what, it's time to go. You're you're not getting the job done. It's time to go. Yeah, I agree. And we'll see what Major League Baseball decides to do. I'm still going to make the jokes about wanting the robots when I see a really bad strike zone (laughs) on a given night, but – Either way, I think there's a lot of, of things to iron out if they're going to have an automated strike zone at any time in the near future or maybe even the distant future for Major League Baseball. Quite a few hurdles still to clear for sure. Bill, enjoyed another chat this week about a whole bunch of different baseball stuff. Nice to kind of at least sort of get back to normal, hitting a lot of different spots and not just being stuck in the midst of the Houston Astros sign gate or whatever we're calling it these days. So enjoyed it as always and look forward to doing it again next week. Yeah, no problem. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll, we'll do it again next week. Appreciate it. My thanks, as always, to Bill Rowland. You can follow him on Twitter, and I recommend that you do. At Bill Rowland is where you can find him, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. And, of course, my thanks again to Jay Jaffe for stopping by the show to talk about the Hall of Fame. Make sure you pick up your copy of the Cooperstown Casebook. You can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold, so be sure to pick up a copy of that. I promise you it is a very compelling, very interesting read, very in-depth as well on the Hall of Fame. So it was a really packed show today, and that is going to do it for us, but make sure you are subscribed to From the Diamond. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Ratings and reviews always appreciated. Be sure to keep those coming, and be sure to follow along on social media. On Twitter, you can find the show at From the Diamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can also find the show on Instagram, at From the Diamond, no underscore on the end. And I am at Grant McCauley on Instagram as well. Make sure you check out FromTheDiamond.com. You can find every episode of the show and my Braves positional preview series, which continues this week. The entire pitching staff is up now, both the bullpen and the starting rotation. Next up, a look at the Atlanta catchers. That'll be coming in the next few days. So make sure you check that out. Also, if you're going to be around Truist Park over the weekend, I will be at Chop Fest on Saturday afternoon. Going to host a show on 680 The Fan with Ben Ingram. So Feel free to stop on by the SunTrust On Up Experience. That's right across from the ballpark, and we'll be hosting from 1 to 3.30. If you want to check in with us there, we'd love to see you. Chat a little bit of Braves, and if you're just looking for another baseball fix, you can check out 680 The Fan if you're in the Atlanta area or the 680 The Fan app, and you can listen to us wherever you are. We'll be talking Braves from Chop Fest on Saturday. Lots of player interviews and fun stuff planned, so hope you'll check that out. Again, that's this weekend at Chop Fest. Ben Ingram and I will be hosting a show from 1 to 3.30, so we hope you'll check that out as we bring you some Braves coverage as we count down the days to spring training, and it's just over two and a half weeks. It is coming quick. February 12th, that's when Braves pitchers and catchers will report to Northport, Florida, and their brand-new spring training facility. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you again for tuning in, for subscribing, for listening, for telling a friend, all of the above. My thanks to Bill Rowland and Jay Jaffe for joining the show. And until next week, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.